Good morning. So how many of you are watching my son instead of me? That was by design. Some of us don't like being up here. Maybe it's me, maybe it's not. I guess we will find out. Second thing, I am the pastor of community life. There was one who came before me. Uh, I have discovered in the very short time that I have been here, I will never do what he did. I am no Gary. I am Jason. Get used to it. <laughs> Let's pray together, and then we will look at God's word, okay? Father, I'm grateful for this time that we can spend studying your word and thinking about what it is that you uh, would have us learn today. God, I pray that our minds and hearts would be open, that we would be willing to hear what you have to say and change our lives accordingly. God, help it not be just in our heads, but in our hearts as well. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been here um, for the last several weeks, we've been going through Daniel, and there's a reoccurring theme that continues to happen. The sovereignty of God comes out over and over and over again. It's not by accident that this is the case. Daniel's speaking to uh, the exiles in Babylon, the Jewish exiles that are waiting for God to move and fulfill his promises. And so his message to them is God is sovereign over all things, and it is evident in each chapter. This one is no different. So... Let us look again at God's sovereignty. A.W. Pink, about 100 years ago, uh, wrote a book called The Sovereignty of God, and in it he said these things, uh, that God reigns supreme in heaven is generally conceded, that he does so over this world is almost universally denied. It is not, or if not directly, then indirectly, more and more men in their philosophizing and theorizing, relegating God to the background. Now, he said this <clears throat> 100 years ago, and we would say that that philosophizing and theorizing has actually resulted in God being removed from the cultural sphere altogether. And the idea being that God exists is kind of a mythological or ideological thing. It's not, it's not reality in today's day and age. I mean, if we talk about God, yeah, that's, that's okay as a, as a crutch, as a, as a way to cope with the things that life brings along. But let's be honest, we know so much about how stars are made and how black holes work and how gravity works and what we do with uh, medicine and how the body works that really we, we got this covered ourselves. And so God has been completely removed from the cultural sphere. And yet God is sovereign over these things, even though he is denied. And that's really what Daniel speaks to here in chapter 5. But before we delve into uh, what chapter 5 talks about, it's important to kind of realize that in chapter 4, we had Nebuchadnezzar being humbled by God. He looked over his kingdom and said, look what I have built, look what I have done. And God said in that moment, I judge you for that, and I will make you 
eat grass like an ox, and it came to pass that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of kings in Babylon, uh, ate grass like a donkey and was relegated to humility until God restored him and he recognized that God is above all things. So that was Daniel chapter 4. Then 20 or 23 years pass by until we come to Daniel chapter 5. This 20 years has been a tumultuous period for the Babylonian empire. When Nebuchadnezzar died, his son took over, his son was assassinated, somebody else took over, and then there was a conspiracy group that came up and overthrew that uh, descendant and um, implemented Nabonidus as the king. Nabonidus was the king of Babylon for 17 years. After about seven, though, he decided Babylon wasn't that great a place to live. He wanted to live somewhere else and was off somewhere else, so he appointed his son, Belshazzar, as the king of Babylon. So Belshazzar is the de facto king of Babylon, which you'll notice in the passage when Belshazzar says to Daniel, I will give you royal robes, and you can be the third greatest in the kingdom. That was because his father was the first, he was the second, and Daniel would then be the third. So here we have Belshazzar as king of Babylon in his city. But what you don't know, or maybe you don't know, is that uh, while he was reigning, the Medo-Persian Empire was gaining power and was slowly taking back land from the Babylonian Empire. And at this point in time, when we get to chapter 5 at the beginning, the Medo-Persian Empire is surrounding the city of Babylon and has been for at least two months, according to the archaeological uh, records. Now, from Babylon's perspective, this wasn't a big deal. You see, they had, they had walls that were unequaled in the world. It was the, one of the seven wonders of the world. They had the Euphrates River that ran right through the city, and the wall was built in such a way that you couldn't get in under that because the river ran uh, too quickly. And so with your armor on, there's no way you could enter the city through the river. So they had these walls. Now, one of the things that was uh, kind of par for the course in, in, a day, in the historical day was that you would, as the historian of the victor, uh, victorious army, you would get to write uh, the great conquests that happened. And so uh, what we have is we have Babylon being exaggerated as this place where the city walls were 350 feet tall. 350 feet tall. 80 feet wide, these massive walls that were impenetrable. Now, archaeology kind of says, well, they weren't quite that big, but compared to everything else, that's exactly what they looked like. It was impossible to get in to Babylon. So Belshazzar is in his palace thinking, I'm untouchable. I'm untouchable. Nothing can touch me. It doesn't matter that I'm surrounded on all sides. I'm untouchable. What he didn't know was that Cyrus, the leader of the Persian army, was quite smart. So what he did is he went upstream from the Euphrates River and he built a dam. And he sent the water off into the slough. And as the water decreased, his army could walk right underneath the wall. And what we have is a sudden takeover of Babylon with almost no bloodshed. 
Babylon, the great city, fell in one night. And it's in this historical setting that Daniel chapter 5 is written and that Daniel's message to Belshazzar comes. It's funny that he is surrounded by this army and he has heard what has happened to his father or his grandfather or the succeeding king with grappling with Yahweh and yet he parties and he takes God's implements that were in the the temple and uses them to worship other gods. And in that moment, God reveals himself in a hand and writes something on the wall. And he goes through the regular rigmarole that it seems every Babylonian king does. Instead of going to the source, Daniel, which seems to be working all the time, he goes to his sorcerers and astrologers and enchanters to try and figure it out. And he can't figure it out. What's really interesting in this passage is that this bothered him so much that in, in, in our text it says it, his knees knocked together, but in, in the Aramaic, in the Hebrew, uh, what it says is, is the, the knots of his bowels were loosened. The, revel- the revelation of God sobered him up real quick. Right? This hand appears and writes a message, and he knows that this is important. And so the queen mother comes along and says, well, there's this guy with his truth. It's all in him. You remember Daniel? You should talk to him. And so Daniel comes and preaches a sermon to Belshazzar, and then I took that sermon and plagiarized it, and now get to share it with you. Makes my job really easy. So Daniel preaches a sermon in where he has essentially three points. There is a great truth, there's a great weight, and there is a great hope. A great truth, a great weight, a great hope. So the first one, a great truth. Daniel 5, 18 to 21. Daniel says, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast." And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdoms of mankind and sets over it whom he will. See, Daniel comes at this in exactly the same spot. He sees the Persian army around him. He sees the partying that's happened. He's seen what happened with Nebuchadnezzar, and he comes to a vastly different conclusion than Belshazzar. His conclusion is God has brought that army. God has brought low your king, and God will bring you low, Belshazzar. See, 
Daniel had an unwavering conviction that God was sovereign over all things. Now, why? I mean, Daniel's not in a great spot. He is in exile and forced to do what these people want. He was brought there from a young age, in his teenage years. This is not what he had intended. This is not what he had desired as a a flourishing life. And yet he is, for some reason, convicted that God has him exactly where he should be and has kings exactly where he should be. And that's probably because he understood how God had worked in the past. You see, he would have grown up a Jewish boy and learned that when God called Abraham out, he prophesied to Abraham and said, I will make you a great nation in Genesis chapter 15. But your people will spend 400 years in captivity and then I will take them to the promised land. And we see through Joseph that exactly that's what happened. The people of Israel were brought into Egypt. They went under slavery for 400 years, and then God delivered them by his mighty hand and brought them to the land that he promised them. As he said he would, God was sovereign over Israel. But at the same time, God continued to bring prophets that would prophesy about what would come in Israel's history. So 2 Kings chapter 20, 16 to 18. Isaiah is talking to Hezekiah after the, Syrian, or the Assyrian army had uh, encircled their city and Hezekiah had been sick and been granted more life. This is what Isaiah says to Hezekiah in prophecy. He says, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried off to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. You see, a hundred years before the king of Babylon came and exiled the Jewish people, Isaiah prophesied by God's grace that this would happen. And Daniel knew that God was in control. And yet Daniel also knew that God would bring destruction to Babylon Again through Isaiah, in Isaiah 47, 10 to 11. You felt secure in your wickedness, Babylon. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your hearts, I am, and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you for which you will not be able to atone, and ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. See, Daniel knew that God was sovereign and that he had promised Babylon's destruction. So this army outside didn't seem like anything. However, to drive the point home, Jeremiah 29, 10 to 14 For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are complete 
for Babylon. I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope, Israel. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This year that Daniel is standing in is year 70. God is sovereign over the affairs of man. The next year, Cyrus sets the Jewish people free and allows them to go back and build the temple and rebuild Jerusalem. Seventy years ago, this was prophesied. That would be like prophesying the Cubs' next World Series victory in 1925. 107 years go by before they win again. But you knew... It would be 2016. God is sovereign over the affairs of man. Yeah, okay, that's great. That's great. Back then, but what about now? How is it that we can understand God as sovereign now? How is God working now? I had an experience of God's sovereignty working in the lives of people in my small group. My friend woke up in the middle of the night to find his wife missing from the bed, and their bathroom light was on. So he went into the bathroom. It was a little bit odd. She was laying on the ground. She had passed out and hit her head and fallen down, was you know, bleeding everywhere. What's wrong? To the hospital they go. Ambulance, worry, fear. And they find out through some tests that she was pregnant, but that it was an ectopic pregnancy, which means that the baby had implanted in the fallopian tube, not in the uterus. And this, if not taken care of, is fatal to mom and baby anyway. So the doctor said, I am so sorry to tell you this, but we're going to have to do surgery and remove the baby. The baby won't live. You will be fine. And then he left. So they called their in-laws. And they just prayed. They said, God, you are sovereign over all things. You are sovereign over this life. Your will be done in this circumstance. So she went into surgery. The doctor cut her open and immediately sewed her back up because baby was in the uterus. God is sovereign over all things. All things. God determines if it rains or snows or if it will drought. God decides who is blessed and who is cursed. He decides who is raised up and who is humbled. He decides who lives, Nebuchadnezzar, and who dies, Belshazzar. God is sovereign over all things. And that is a great truth. But if you're like me, you bristle at that a little bit. Because we don't always like the things that have come in our life 
the suffering or pain or difficulty or if we could just have it this way. And so we bristle to think that God has control over all things. So Daniel addresses that by talking about a great weight. Daniel 5, 22 to 23. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. Belshazzar was about my age. So that means that when Nebuchadnezzar went through what he went through, Belshazzar was a teenager. And he would have been close enough to the throne to see what God did. That he would have seen Nebuchadnezzar as the king of kings, this powerful all-encompassing being brought low by the God of the universe, by the God of the Jews, and made to eat grass like an ox. And until he recognized God as in his rightful place, Nebuchadnezzar stayed there. And yet, he did not humble his heart. He did not listen to God. He lifted up himself against the Lord of heaven, And he took the vessels out of the house that had been brought in before you. And you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hands is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. You have taken the very things that God intended as set apart to worship him and and show him as glorious and honorable and holy and good above all else, and you have used them for your own pleasure, your own power, and you've used them to make yourself look greater than God, to mock God as if he was nothing while your enemy is at the gates. And because of this, God's message to him is you have been measured, you have been weighed, and you have been found wanting. And so I will take your life. Whew. Good thing we're not Belshazzar, hey? Or maybe, maybe we are. I know that I can be. Uh, when I graduated high school, I enrolled in a pre-med program at UBC. And from day one, I knew it was not the right decision. There was something inside of me that said it wasn't the truth. I would open the Bible and read my, read my devotions and God was screaming at me, this is not where you should be. And I said, oh, but, but God, this is a good thing. I mean, I can help people medically. You've given me a brain that likes math and science. You've allowed me to do well in high school. Clear, like, clearly, you just don't quite know God of the universe. You don't know what I want 
God, if you're calling me to be a pastor, how am I ever to get that lovely, nice, new car? How am I ever supposed to supply for my future family? What about my retirement? What about my security? God, you know nothing. I know what's good for me. I know what I need. I know what I want. I know what I'm good at. So get off your throne. That's where I should sit. I know what's good for me. And school is good for me. Becoming a doctor is good for me. It will be good for my family. It will be good for my future. And it will be good for my security. And that was the message that I had with God for two years. I am Belshazzar. Romans 1, Ephesians 2, Psalm 10 talk about that reality that we see God and yet we deny him. But we're going to look at Jeremiah again because he seems to be a relatively uh, trustworthy source. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. See, we, we have an inner Belshazzar an inner pride, an inner arrogance that talks to God as if God is not God and that we should be that spot, in that spot. We take the things that God has given us, our skills, our abilities, our resources, and we use them on us, on my welfare, on my well-being, on my success, on my future. And then we take credit for it. You see, God says in his word, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And we say, you don't know how much he hurt me. You don't understand, God, how it is that those wounds that are in my heart, how they got there. You don't understand the pain and sorrow and tears that I had at night because of that person. And you want me to forgive him? God, get off your throne. That's where I belong. I know what's right. I know what's just. I know what's good. Or we say, God, you have no idea what it's like to be in business. I know we're supposed to be honest and people of integrity, but all of the people around me aren't. How am I supposed to get ahead? How am I supposed to provide for my family if I don't protect myself? If I don't save and hoard? What about my retirement, God? What does that look like? If I don't protect me, who will? God, your word saying that you will protect me, that you will provide for me, that like you provide for the the sparrows and the flowers, that you will do that for me. I don't trust that. I trust myself to be able to pull me up, to provide for my family, to give me a hope and a future. That's my job, God. Well, what about sexual ethics and the bonds of marriage between one man and one woman? Do we trust God or do we say, God, you get off of that throne? Because what you have for me, you have no idea 
You don't know how hard it is to be single. You don't know how hard it is to live with my wife. You don't know what it's like to struggle and deal with same-sex attraction. You have no idea. And so God, get off your throne. That is a place for me. And so we spit in God's face and we beat him with our ideologies and we nail him to a tree. And all of a sudden, the great truth of God's sovereignty becomes a great weight because of our pride. And if the message was left there, we would be full of sorrow and despair because God as sovereign over all things then is against us as we are against him. But there is a great hope found here in Daniel chapter five. The last two verses. Daniel 5, 30 and 31. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. No? No? Oh, that's super hopeful. It, it's, not, it, it's not hopeful if we're Belshazzar. But I want you to remember back a few Sundays when we talked about Daniel chapter 2. And Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that troubled him. And Daniel was called to interpret that dream. Not only interpret it, but predict it. So Daniel said, ah, oh, yes, you had a dream about a statue, and its head was made of gold, and its midsection was made of silver, and its bottom was made of bronze, and it's iron, and then it goes down to dirt. And what that means is that there's successive kingdoms coming and your kingdom will end and then there will be another one and then there will be another one and then there will be another one. And the death of Belshazzar is a signal that God's prophecy in Daniel in his lifetime was coming to fruition, that the next kingdom was coming. But it doesn't stop there because in Daniel chapter 2 verse 44, he says this, after all of those kingdoms... And then in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. You see, the death of Belshazzar is the beginning of God's working towards the building of his kingdom. And that is great hope for us Belshazzars. In Mark chapter 1, 14 to 15, it says this. John the Baptist was arrested. It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and to believe the gospel. You see, the, the sovereign God of the universe, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God who has right over everything, who lifts up and brings down, who brings rain and snow, who brings suffering and healing, who causes peace 
and strife. The God who holds all things in place is not against you, but is for you in Christ. That is the gospel. That the sovereignty of God is for you in Christ. And instead of exacting judgment against you and me for our rightful insubordination, for our arrogance of dethroning him and putting him on a cross, for us saying, God, you are worthless and you do not know what you're doing in my life, but I do. For that, he sent Jesus not to condemn us, but to save us. And that, friends, is a great hope. And it is only a great hope if God is sovereign over all things. Let's pray. Father, just massage that that truth into our hearts that you are not against us, but you are for us. God, help us submit to your authority. Help us trust you, to honor you as God over all things. Thank you for your grace in Jesus. Amen.